Chapter Two, Part One of an Essay on the Trial by Jury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. Trial by Jury by Lysander Spooner. Chapter Two, Part One. The trial by jury as defined by Magna Carta. That the trial by jury is all that has been claimed for it in the preceding chapter is proved both by the history and the language of the great charter of English liberties, to which we are to look for a true definition of the trial by jury, and of which the guarantee for that trial is the vital and most memorable part. Section 1. The History of Magna Carta. In order to judge of the object and meaning of that chapter of Magna Carta which secures the trial by jury, it is to be borne in mind that, at the time of Magna Carta, the king, with exceptions immaterial to this discussion, but which will appear hereafter, was constitutionally the entire government, the sole legislative, judicial, and executive power of the nation. The executive and judicial officers were merely his servants, appointed by him, and removable at his pleasure. In addition to this, the king himself often sat in his court, which always attended his person. He there heard causes and pronounced judgment, and though he was assisted by the advice of other members, it is not to be imagined that a decision could be obtained contrary to his inclination or opinion. Judges were, in those days and afterwards, such abject servants of the king that we find that King Edward I, 1272 to 1307, fined and imprisoned his judges in the same manner as Alfred the Great among the Saxons had done before him by the sole exercise of his authority. Parliament, so far as there was a Parliament, was a mere council of the king. Note. Coke says, The king of England is armed with diverse councils, one whereof is called commune concilium, the common council, and that is the court of Parliament, and so it is legally called, in writs and judicial proceedings, commune concilium regne anglia, the common council of the kingdom of England, and another is called Magnum Concilium, Great Council. This is sometimes applied to the upper house of Parliament, and sometimes, out of Parliament time, to the peers of the realm, lords of Parliament, who are called Magnum Concilium Regis, the Great Council of the King. Thirdly, as every man knoweth, the King hath a privy council for matters of state, the fourth council of the king are his judges for law matters. Coke's Institutes 110a. End footnote. It assembled only at the pleasure of the king, sat only during his pleasure, and when sitting had no power, so far as general legislation was concerned, beyond that of simply advising the king. The only legislation to which their assent was constitutionally necessary was demands for money, and military services for extraordinary occasions. Even Magna Carta itself makes no provisions whatever for any parliaments, except when the king should want the means to carry on war, or to meet some other extraordinary necessity. Note. The Great Charter of Henry the Third, 1216 and 1225, confirmed by Edward the First. 1297, makes no provision whatever for, or mention of, a parliament, unless the provision, chapter 37, that esquage, a military contribution, from henceforth shall be taken like as it was wont to be in the time of King Henry, our grandfather, mean that a parliament shall be summoned for that purpose. End footnote. He had no need of parliaments to raise taxes for the ordinary purposes of the government, for his revenues from the rents of the crowned lands and other sources 
were ample for all except extraordinary occasions. Parliaments, too, when assembled, consisted only of bishops, barons, and other great men of the kingdom, unless the king chose to invite others. Note. The Magna Carta of John, chapter 17 and 18, defines those who were entitled to be summoned to Parliament, to wit, the archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, and great barons of the realm, and all others who hold of us in chief. Those who held land in the king in chief included none below the rank of knights. End of footnote. There was no house of commons at that time, and the people had no right to be heard, unless as petitioners. Note. The parliaments of that time were, doubtless, such as Carlyle describes them, when he says, The parliament was at first a most simple assemblage, quite cognate to the situation. That Red William, or whoever had taken on him the terrible task of being king of England, was wont to invite, oftenest about Christmas time, his subordinate kinglets, barons as he called them, to give him the pleasure of their company for a week or two. There, in earnest conference all morning, in freer talk over Christmas cheer all evening, in some big royal hall of Westminster, Winchester, or wherever he might be, with log fires, huge rounds of roast and boiled, not lacking Malmsey and other generous liquor, they took counsel concerning the arduous matters of the kingdom. End of footnote. Even when laws were made at the time of a parliament, they were made in the name of the king alone. Sometimes it was inserted in the laws that they were made with the consent or advice of the bishops, barons, and others assembled, but often this was omitted. Their consent or advice was evidently a matter of no legal importance to the enactment or validity of the laws, but only inserted, when inserted at all, with a view of obtaining a more willing submission to them on the part of the people. The style of enactment generally was either the king wills and commands, or some other form significant of the sole legislative authority of the king. The king could pass laws at any time when it pleased him. The presence of a parliament was wholly unnecessary. Hume says, It is asserted by Sir Henry Splayman, as an undoubted fact, that, during the reigns of the Norman princes, every order of the king issued with the consent of his privy council had the full force of law. And other authorities abundantly corroborate this assertion. Note. This point will be more fully established hereafter. End of footnote. The king was therefore, constitutionally, the government, and the only legal limitation upon his power seems to have been simply the common law, usually called the law of the land, which he was bound by oath to maintain, which oath had about the same practical value as similar oaths have always had. This law of the land seems not to have been regarded at all by many of the kings, except so far as they found it convenient to do so, or were constrained to observe it, by fear of arousing resistance. But as all people are slow in making resistance, oppression and usurpation often reached a great height. And, in the case of John, they had become so intolerable as to enlist the nation almost universally against him, and he was reduced to the necessity of complying with any terms the baron saw fit to dictate to him. It was under these circumstances that the great charter of English liberties was granted. The barons of England, sustained by the common people, having their king in their power, compelled him, as the price of his throne, to pledge himself that he would punish no freeman for a violation of any of his laws, unless with the consent of the peers, that is, the equals, of the accused. The question here arises, whether the barons and people intended that those peers, the jury, should be mere puppets in the hands of the king, exercising no opinion of their own as to the intrinsic merits of the accusations they should try, 
or the justice of the laws they should be called on to enforce. Whether those haughty and victorious barons, when they had their tyrant king at their feet, gave back to him his throne, with full power to enact any tyrannical laws he might please, reserving only to a jury, the country, the contemptible and servile privilege of ascertaining, under the dictation of the king, or his judges, as to the laws of evidence, the simple fact whether those laws had been transgressed. Was this the only restraint which, when they had all power in their hands, they placed upon the tyranny of a king, whose oppressions they had risen in arms to resist? Was it to obtain such a charter as that, that the whole nation had united, as it were, like one man against their king? Was it on such a charter that they intended to rely, for all future time, for the security of their liberties? No, they were engaged in no such senseless work as that. On the contrary, when they required him to renounce forever the power to punish any freeman, unless by the consent of his peers, they intended those peers should judge of and try the whole case on its merits, independently of all arbitrary legislation or judicial authority on the part of the king. In this way they took the liberties of each individual, and thus the liberties of the whole people, entirely out of the hands of the king, and out of the power of his laws, and placed them in the keeping of the people themselves. And this it was that made the trial by jury the palladium of their liberties. The trial by jury, be it observed, was the only real barrier interposed by them against absolute despotism. Could this trial, then, have been such an entire farce as it necessarily must have been, if the jury had had no power to judge of the justice of the laws the people were required to obey? Did it not rather imply that the jury were to judge independently and fearlessly as to everything involved in the charge, and especially as to its intrinsic justice, and thereon give their decision, unbiased by any legislation of the king, whether the accused might be punished? The reason of the thing, no less than the historical celebrity of the events, as securing the liberties of the people, and the veneration with which the trial by jury has continued to be regarded, notwithstanding its essence and vitality have been almost entirely extracted from it in practice, would settle the question, if other evidences had left the matter in doubt. Besides, if his laws were to be authoritative with the jury, why should John indignantly refuse, as at first he did, to grant the charter, and finally grant it only when brought to the last extremity, on the ground that it deprived him of all power and left him only the name of a king? He evidently understood that the juries were to veto his laws and paralyze his power at discretion by forming their own opinions as to the true character of the offenses they were to try and the laws they were to be called on to enforce, and that the king wills and commands was to have no weight with them contrary to their own judgments of what was intrinsically right. Note. It is plain that the king and all his partisans looked upon the charter as utterly prostrating the king's legislative supremacy before the discretion of juries. When the schedule of liberties demanded by the barons was shown to him, of which the trial by jury was the most important, because it was the only one that protected all the rest, the king, falling into a violent passion, asked, Why the barons did not, with these exactions, demand the kingdom? And with a solemn oath protested that he would never grant such liberties as would make himself a slave. But afterwards, seeing himself deserted, and fearing they would seize his castles, he sent the Earl of Pembroke and other faithful messengers to them, to let them know he would grant them the laws and liberties they desired. But after the charter had been granted, the king's mercenary soldiers, desiring war more than peace, were by their leaders continually whispering in his ears, 
that he was now no longer king, but the scorn of other princes, and that it was more eligible to be no king than such a one as he. He applied to the pope that he might by his apostolic authority make void what the barons had done. At Rome he met with what success he could desire, where all the transactions with the barons were fully represented to the pope, and the charter of liberties shown to him in writing, which, when he had carefully perused, he, with a furious look, cried out, What? Do the barons of England endeavor to dethrone a king who has taken upon him the holy cross, and is under the protection of the apostolic see, and would they force him to transfer the dominions of the Roman church to others? By St. Peter this injury must not pass unpunished. Then debating the matter with the cardinals, he, by a definitive sentence, damned and castigated for ever the charter of liberties, and sent the king a bull containing that sentence at large. Eckert's History of England, page 106-107 to These things show that the nature and effect of the charter were well understood by the king and his friends, that they all agreed that he was effectually stripped of power, yet the legislative power had not been taken from him, but only the power to enforce his laws, unless juries should freely consent to their enforcement. End footnote. The barons and people having obtained by the charter all the liberties they had demanded of the king, it was further provided by the charter itself that twenty-five barons should be appointed by the barons, out of their number, to keep special vigilance in the kingdom, to see that the charter was observed, with authority to make war upon the king in case of its violation. The king also, by the charter, so far absolved all the people of the kingdom from their allegiance to him, as to authorize and require them to swear to obey the twenty-five barons, in case they should make war upon the king for infringement of the charter. It was then thought by the barons and people that something substantial had been done for the security of their liberties. This charter, in its most essential features, and without any abatement as to the trial by jury, has since been confirmed more than thirty times, and the people of England have always had a traditionary idea that it was of some value as a guarantee against oppression. Yet that idea has been an entire delusion, unless the jury have had the right to judge of the justice of the laws they were called on to enforce. Section 2. The Language of Magna Carta The language of the Great Charter establishes the same point that is established by its history, viz., that it is the right and duty of the jury to judge of the justice of the laws. The chapter guaranteeing the trial by jury is in these words, Nullus liber homo capiator, vel imprisonator, aut decesator, aut utlagator, aut exulator, aut aleque modo destruator, nec super eum ibimus, nec super eum mutsemus, nisi per legali judicium, parium suorum, vel per legem terre. Note. The laws were, at that time, all written in Latin. End footnote. The corresponding chapter in the Great Charter, granted by Henry the Third, twelve twenty five, and confirmed by Edward the First, twelve ninety seven, which charter is now considered the basis of the English laws and constitution, is in nearly the same words as follows Nullus liber homo capiator, vel imprisonator, aut decesator de libero tenementor, vel libertatibus, vel liberis, consuetudinibus suis, aut utlagetor, aut exulator, aut aliqui modo destruator, nec super eum ebimus, nec super eum mitsemus, nisi per legali judicium, paurium suorum, vel per legem terre. The most common translation of these words at the present day is as follows. 
No freeman shall be arrested, or imprisoned, or deprived of his freehold, or his liberties, or free customs, or outlawed, or exiled, or in any manner destroyed. Nor will we, the king, pass upon him, nor condemn him, unless by the judgment of his peers, or the law of the land. Nec super iam ibimus, nec super iam mitsemus. There has been much confusion and doubt as to the true meaning of the words nec super iam ibimus, nec super iam mitsemus. The more common rendering has been, nor will we pass upon him, nor condemn him. But some have translated them to mean, nor will we pass upon him, nor commit him to prison. Coke gives still a different rendering to the effect that no man shall be condemned at the king's suit, either before the king in his bench, nor before any other commissioner or judge whatsoever. Note. No man shall be condemned at the king's suit, either before the king in his bench, we please our quorum regia, before the king, and so are the words nec super eam ibimus to be understood, nor before any other commissioner or judge whatsoever, and so are the words nec super eam mitsemus to be understood, but by the judgment of his peers, that is, equals, or according to the law of the land. Second Coke's Institutes, 46. End of footnote. But all these translations are clearly erroneous. In the first place, nor will we pass upon him, meaning thereby to decide upon his guilt or innocence judicially, is not a correct rendering of the words nec super eum ibimus. There is nothing whatever in those latter words that indicates judicial action or opinion at all. The words, in their common signification, describe physical action alone, and the true translation of them, as will hereafter be seen, is, nor will we proceed against him executively. In the second place, the rendering, nor will we condemn him, bears little or no analogy to any common, or even uncommon, signification of the words nec super am mitsemos. There is nothing in these latter words that indicates judicial action or decision. Their common signification, like that of the words nec super am ibimus, describes physical action alone. Nor will we send upon or against him, would be the most obvious translation, and, as we shall hereafter see, such is the true translation. But although these words describe physical action on the part of the king, as distinguished from judicial, they nevertheless do not mean, as one of the translation has it, nor will we commit him to prison, for that would be a mere repetition of what had already been declared by the words nec imprisonator. Besides, there is nothing about prisons in the words nec super eum mitsemus, nothing about sending him anywhere, but only about sending something or somebody upon him or against him, that is, executively. Coke's rendering is, if possible, the most absurd and gratuitous of all. What is there in the words nec super eum mitsemus that can be made to mean, nor shall he be condemned before any other commissioner or judge whatsoever? Clearly there is nothing. The whole rendering is a sheer fabrication, and the whole object of it is to give color for the exercise of a judicial power by the king or his judges, which is nowhere given them. Neither the words nec super eum ibimus, nec super eum mitsemus, nor any other words in the whole chapter authorize, provide for, describe, or suggest any judicial action whatever on the part either of the king or of his judges or of anybody except the peers or jury there is nothing about the king's judges at all and there is nothing whatever in the whole chapter 
so far as relates to the action of the king, that describes or suggests anything but executive action. Note. Perhaps the assertion in the text should be made with this qualification, that the words per legium terri, according to the law of the land, and the words per legale judicium parium suorum, according to the legal judgment of his peers, imply that the king, before proceeding to any executive action, will take notice of the law of the land, and of the legality of the judgment of the peers, and will execute upon the prisoner nothing except what the law of the land authorizes, and no judgments of the peers except legal ones. With this qualification, the assertion in the text is strictly correct, that there is nothing in the whole chapter that grants to the king or his judges any judicial power at all. The chapter only describes and limits his executive power. End of footnote. But that all these translations are certainly erroneous is proved by a temporary charter, granted by John a short time previous to the great charter, for the purpose of giving an opportunity for conference, arbitration, and reconciliation between him and his barons. It was to have force until the matters in controversy between them could be submitted to the Pope, and to other persons to be chosen, some by the king and some by the barons. The words of the charter are as follows. Siatis nos consusisse baronibus nostris, qui contra nos sunt, quod nec eos, nec homines suos capiemus, nec decesiemus, nec super eos per vim, vel per arma ibimus, nisi per legem regni nostri, vel per judicium parium suorum, in curia nostra, donac consideratio facta fuert. That is, know that we have granted to our barons who are opposed to us, that we will neither arrest them, nor their men, nor deceive them, nor will we proceed against them by force or by arms, unless by the law of our kingdom, or by the judgment of their peers in our court, until consideration shall be had, etc., etc. A copy of this charter is given in a note in Blackstone's introduction to the charters. Note. See Blackstone's Law Tracts, page 294, Oxford edition. End of footnote. Mr. Christian speaks of this charter as settling the true meaning of the corresponding clause in Magna Carta, on the principle that laws and charters on the same subject are to be construed with reference to each other. See Third Christian's Blackstone, 41, and note. The true meaning of the words, nec super eam ibimus, nec super eam mitsemus, is also proved by the articles of the great charter of liberties, demanded of the king by the barons, and agreed to by the king under seal a few days before the date of the charter, and from which the charter was framed. Note. These articles of the charter are given in Blackstone's collection of charters, and are also printed with the statutes of the realm. Also in Wilkins' Law of the Anglo-Saxons, page 356. End footnote. Here the words used are these. Ne corpus librae homines capiator, nec imprisonator, nec decesator, nec utlagetor, nec exulator, nec aliquem modo destuator, nec rex eat vel mitat, super eam vi nisi per judicium parium suorum, vel per legem terre. That is, the body of a freeman shall not be arrested, nor imprisoned, nor deceased, nor outlawed, nor exiled, nor in any manner destroyed, nor shall the king proceed or send any one against him with force, unless by the judgment of his peers or the law of the land. 
The true translation of the words nec super eam ibimus, nec super eam mitsemus, in Magna Carta, is thus made certain, as follows. Nor will we, the king, proceed against him, nor send any one against him with force or arms. Note. Lingard says, the words, We will not destroy him, nor will we go upon him, nor will we send upon him, have been very differently expounded by different legal authorities. Their real meaning may be learned from John himself, who the next year promised by his letters patent, Nec super eos per vim vel per arma ibimus, nisi par legium regne nostri, vel par judicium parium suorum, in curia nostra. Nor will we go upon them by force or by arms, unless by the law of our kingdom, or the judgment of their peers in our court. Patent 16, Johann, Apud Drad, 11, Ap, Numero, 124. He had hitherto been in the habit of going with an armed force, or sending an armed force, on the lands and against the castles, of all whom he knew or suspected to be his secret enemies, without observing any form of law. Third Lingard, 47, end note. End of footnote. It is evident that the difference between the true and false translations of the words nec super eum ibimus, nec super eum mitsemus, is of the highest legal importance, inasmuch as the true translation, nor will we, the king, proceed against him, nor send any one against him by force or arms, represents the king only in an executive character, carrying the judgment of the peers and the law of the land into execution. Whereas the false translation, nor will we pass upon him, nor condemn him, gives color for the exercise of a judicial power on the part of the king, to which the king had no right, but which, according to the true translation, belongs wholly to the jury. Per legale judicium parium suorum. The foregoing interpretation is corroborated, if it were not already too plain to be susceptible of corroboration, by the true interpretation of the phrase per legale judicium parium suorum. In giving this interpretation, I leave out, for the present, the word legale, which will be defined afterwards. The true meaning of the phrase per judicium parium suorum is according to the sentence of his peers. The word judicium, judgment, has a technical meaning in the law, signifying the decree rendered in the decision of a cause. In civil suits, this decision is called a judgment. In chancery proceedings, it is called a decree. In criminal actions, it is called a sentence or judgment indifferently. Thus, in a criminal suit, a motion in arrest of judgment means a motion in arrest of sentence. Note. Judgment judicium. The sentence of the law pronounced by the court upon the matter contained in the record. Third Blackstone, 395. Jacob's Law Dictionary. Ptolemon's Ditto. Judgment is the decision or sentence of the law given by a court of justice or other competent tribunal as the result of the proceedings instituted therein for the redress of an injury. Boivere's Law Dictionary. Judgment Judicium. Sentence of a judge against a criminal. Determination, decision in general. Bailey's Dictionary. Judgment. In a legal sense, a sentence or decision pronounced by authority of a king or other power, either by their own mouth or by that of their judges and officers whom they appoint to administer justice in their stead. Chambers Dictionary. Judgment. In law, the sentence or doom pronounced in any case, civil or criminal, 
by the judge or court by which it is tried. Webster's Dictionary. Sometimes the punishment itself is called judicium, judgment, or rather it was at the time of the Magna Carta. For example, in a statute passed fifty-one years after Magna Carta, it was said that a baker, for default in the weight of his bread, debiat amatiari vel subire judicium pilorie, that is, ought to be immersed or suffer the punishment or judgment of the pilroy. Also, that a brewer, for selling ale contrary to the assize, debiat amatiari vel parti judicium tumbrelli, that is, ought to be immersed or suffer the punishment or judgment of the tumbril. 51 Henry 1266. Also, the statutes of uncertain date, but supposed to be prior to Edward the Third, or 1326, provide, in chapters 6, 7, and 10, for judgment of the pillory. See first Roughhead Statutes, 187-188. First Statutes of the Realm, 203. Blackstone, in his chapter of Judgment and its Consequences, says, Judgment, unless any matter be offered in arrest thereof, follows upon conviction, being the pronouncing of that punishment which is expressly ordained by law. Blackstone's Analysis of the Laws of England, Book 4, Chapter 29, Section 1. Blackstone's Law Tracts, 126. Coke says, Judicium, the judgment is the guide and direction of the execution. Third Institutes, 210. End footnote. In cases of sentence, therefore, in criminal suits, the words sentence and judgment are synonymous terms. They are, to this day, commonly used in law books as synonymous terms and the phrase per judicium parium suorum therefore implies that the jury are to fix the sentence the word per means according to otherwise there is no sense in the phrase per judicium parium suorum there would be no sense in saying that a king might imprison deceive outlaw exile or otherwise punish a man or proceed against him or send anyone against him by force or arms, by a judgment of his peers, but there is sense in saying that the king may imprison, deceive, and punish a man, or proceed against him, or send any one against him, by force or arms, according to a judgment or sentence of his peers, because in that case the king would be merely carrying the sentence or judgment of the peers into execution. The word per, in the phrase per judicium parium suorum, of course means precisely what it does in the next phrase, per legem terre, where it obviously means according to and not by, as it is usually translated. There would be no sense in saying that the king might proceed against a man by force or arms by the law of the land, but there is sense in saying that he may proceed against him by force or arms according to the law of the land, because the king would then be acting only as an executive officer, carrying the law of the land into execution. Indeed, the true meaning of the word by, as used in similar cases now, always is according to. As, for example, when we say a thing was done by the government, or by the executive, by law, we mean only that it was done by them according to law, that is, that they merely executed the law. Or, if we say that the word by signifies by authority of, the result will still be the same, for nothing can be done by authority of law except what the law itself authorizes or directs to be done. That is, Nothing can be done by authority of law except simply to carry the law itself into execution. So nothing could be done by authority of the sentence of the peers, or by authority of the law of the land, 
except what the sentence of the peers, or the law of the land, themselves authorize or directed to be done. Nothing, in short, but to carry the sentence of the peers, or the law of the land, themselves into execution. Doing a thing by law, or according to law, is only carrying the law into execution, and punishing a man by, or according to, the sentence or judgment of his peers, is only carrying that sentence or judgment into execution. If these reasons could leave any doubt that the word per is to be translated according to, that doubt would be removed by the terms of an antecedent guarantee for the trial by jury, granted by the Emperor Conrad of Germany, two hundred years before Magna Carta. Note. This precedent from Germany is good authority, because the trial by jury was in use, in the northern nations of Europe generally, long before Magna Carta, and probably from time immemorial, and the Saxons and Normans were familiar with it before they settled in England. End footnote. Blackstone cites it as follows. Third Blackstone, 350. Nemo beneficium suum perdat, nisse secundum consueturinum antecessorum nostrorum et judicium parium suorum. That is, no one shall lose his estate unless according to secundum, the custom or law of our ancestors, and according to the sentence or judgment of his peers. Note. Benefatium was the legal name of an estate held by a feudal tenor. See Spalman's Glossary. End footnote. The evidence is therefore conclusive that the phrase per judicium parium suorum means according to the sentence of his peers, thus implying that the jury and not the government are to fix the sentence. If any additional proof were wanted that juries were to fix the sentence, it would be found in the following provisions of Magna Carta, viz. A freeman shall not be immersed for a small crime, delicto, but according to the degree of the crime, and for a great crime in proportion to the magnitude of it, saving to him his contentment, and after the same manner a merchant, saving to him his merchandise. And a villain shall be immersed after the same manner, saving to him his wainage, if he fall under our mercy, and none of the aforesaid immersements shall be imposed, or assess bonator, but by the oath of honest men of the neighborhood, earls and barons shall not be immersed but by their peers, and according to the degree of their crime. Notes. Contentment of a freeman was the means of living in the condition of a freeman. Wainage was a villain's plough tackle and carts. Tomalin says, The ancient practice was, when any such fine was imposed, to inquire by a jury, Quantum inde regi dare valiat per annum salva sustentationes sua et uxores et liber orum suorum. How much is he able to give to the king per annum, saving his own maintenance and that of his wife and children? And since the disuse of such inquest, it is never usual to assess a larger fine than a man is able to pay, without touching the implements of his livelihood, but to inflict corporal punishment, or a limited imprisonment, instead of a fine as might amount to imprisonment for life. And this is the reason why fines in the king's courts are frequently denominated ransoms because the penalty must otherwise fall upon a man's person, unless it be redeemed or ransomed by a pecuniary fine. Tomlin's Law Dictionary, Word Fine. End of footnotes. Pecuniary punishments were the most common punishments of that day, and the foregoing provisions of Magna Carta show that the amount of these punishments was to be fixed by the jury. Fines went to the king and were a source of revenue, and if the amounts of the fines had been left to be fixed by the king, he would have had a pecuniary temptation to oppose unreasonable and oppressive ones. 
So, also, in regard to other punishments than fines. If it were left to the king to fix the punishment, he might often have motives to inflict cruel and oppressive ones, as it was the object of the trial by jury to protect the people against all possible oppression from the king, it was necessary that the jury, and not the king, should fix the punishments. Note. Because juries were to fix the sentence, it must not be supposed that the king was obliged to carry the sentence into execution, but only that he could not go beyond the sentence. He might pardon or he might acquit on grounds of law, notwithstanding the sentence, but he could not punish beyond the extent of the sentence. Magna Carta does not prescribe that the king shall punish according to the sentence of the peers, but only that he shall not punish unless according to that sentence. He may acquit or pardon, notwithstanding their sentence or judgment, but he cannot punish except according to their judgment. End footnote. Legali. The word legali, in the phrase, per legali judicium parim suorum, doubtless means two things, that the sentence must be given in a legal manner, that is, by the legal number of jurors, legally impaneled and sworn to try the cause, and that they give their judgment or sentence after a legal trial, both in form and substance, has been had, that the sentence shall be for a legal cause or offense. If, therefore, a jury should convict and sentence a man, either without giving him a legal trial, or for an act that was not really and legally criminal, the sentence itself would not be legal, and consequently this clause forbids the king to carry such a sentence into execution, for the clause guarantees that he will execute no judgment or sentence except it be legale judicium, a legal sentence. Whether a sentence be a legal one would have to be ascertained by the king or his judges on appeal, or might be judged of informally by the king himself. The word legale clearly did not mean that the judicium parium suorum, judgment of his peers, should be a sentence which any law of the king should require the peers to pronounce, for in that case the sentence would not be the sentence of the peers, but only the sentence of the law, that is, of the king, and the peers would be only a mouthpiece of the law, that is, of the king, in uttering it. Per legem terre. One other phrase remains to be explained, viz. per legem terre, by the law of the land. All writers agree that this means the common law. Thus, Sir Matthew Hale says, The common law is sometimes called, by way of eminence, lex terre, as in the statutes of Magna Carta, chapter 29, where certainly the common law is principally intended by those words, aut per legem terre, as appears by the exposition thereof in several subsequent statutes, and particularly in the statute of twenty eight Edward the third, chapter three, which is but an exposition and explanation of that statute. Sometimes it is called Lex Anglia, as in the statute of Merton, chapter nine, Nolimus Legis Angliae Matari, etc. We will that the laws of England be not changed. Sometimes it is called Lex et consuetudine regne, the law and custom of the kingdom, as in all commissions of Oyer and Terminar, and in the statutes of 18 Edward I, and de quo warranto, and diverse others. But most commonly it is called the common law, or the common law of England, as in the statute Articule Super Cartos, chapter 18 and in the statute 25, Edward III, chapter 5, 4, and infinite more records and statutes. First Hale's History of the Common Law, 128. This common law, or law of the land, the king was sworn to maintain, 
This fact is recognized by a statute made at Westminster in 1346 by Edward III, which commences in this manner. Edward, by the grace of God, etc., etc., to the Sheriff of Safford, greeting. Because that by diverse complaints made to us, we have perceived that the law of the land, which we by oath are bound to maintain, etc., Statute 20, Edward III. The foregoing authorities are cited to show to the unprofessional reader what is well known to the profession, that legem terre, the law of the land, mentioned in Magna Carta, was the common, ancient, fundamental law of the land, which the kings were bound by oath to observe, and that it did not include any statutes or laws enacted by the king himself, the legislative power of the nation. If the term legem terre had included laws enacted by the king himself, the whole chapter of Magna Carta, now under discussion, would have amounted to nothing as a protection to liberty, because it would have imposed no restraint whatever upon the power of the king. The king could make laws at any time, and such ones as he pleased. He could, therefore, have done anything he pleased, by the law of the land, as well as in any other way, if his own laws had been the law of the land. If his own laws had been the law of the land, within the meaning of that term as used in Magna Carta, this chapter of Magna Carta would have been sheer nonsense, inasmuch as the whole purport of it would have been simply that no man shall be arrested, imprisoned, or deprived of his freehold, or his liberties, or free customs, or outlawed, or exiled, or in any manner destroyed by the king, nor shall the king proceed against him, nor send any one against him with force and arms, unless by the judgment of his peers, or unless the king shall please to do so. This chapter of Magna Carta would, therefore, have imposed not the slightest restraint upon the power of the king, or afforded the slightest protection to the liberties of the people, if the laws of the king had been embraced in the term legem terre. But if legem terre was the common law, which the king was sworn to maintain, then a real restriction was laid upon his power, and a real guarantee given to the people for their liberties. Such, then, being the meaning of legem terre, the fact is established that Magna Carta took an accused person entirely out of the hands of the legislative power, that is, of the king, and placed him in the power and under the protection of his peers, and the common law alone. That, in short, Magna Carta suffered no man to be punished for violating any enactment of the legislative power, unless the peers or equals of the accused freely consented to it, or the common law authorized it. That the legislative power, of itself, was wholly incompetent to require the conviction or punishment of a man for any offense whatever. End of chapter 2, part 1